From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. Your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. And happy Independence Day to all of you. On today's program, we're going to revisit some of our favorite and most patriotic interviews, all of which celebrate the importance of religious freedom and the need to protect this first freedom for all Americans. Before we do that, this is Katie Joseph, Policy and Advocacy Director at Interfaith Alliance. This has been an incredibly eventful few weeks at the Supreme Court, and I just wanted to take a moment to draw your attention to a few major cases. First and foremost, what for many was a devastating opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. This case, which is familiar to many as overturning Roe and Casey and the constitutional right to abortion, has been moving through the courts for a long time and, of course, was the subject of a leaked draft opinion just a few weeks ago. But for many of us, regardless of our personal experiences with abortion, our views, together we're picking up the pieces as we begin to imagine a country in which where you live from state to state, your zip code will determine the control you may have over your ability to have or not have children. This is a sea change in American law, and despite overwhelming support for the right to make one's own reproductive health decisions among people of faith, the decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health imposes one view on abortion access rooted for many in a religious viewpoint that runs counter to the religious and personal beliefs of others. For Interfaith Alliance, Reproductive freedom is fundamentally a matter of religious freedom. There is overwhelming support for abortion access among people of faith in the United States. Polling has found again and again that people of various religious traditions, as well as those who identify as atheists or who don't identify with a particular faith tradition, believe that each person should have the ability to make their own decisions about whether and when they become a parent. But for millions of people in states across the country in the coming months and years, those decisions, those deeply personal decisions that for many are informed by their religious convictions, will be removed from their hands and from the discernment process that they may go through themselves and with their doctors. And instead, those decisions will be made by state legislators who will be in a position to impose their own religious beliefs on their constituents. There are many existing networks of clergy, people of faith, community members who see as their calling to support those who are making essential decisions about building their families. And that includes access to abortion. For many religious traditions, 
the choice to bring a child into this world is fundamental to a set of values that dictate one's way of moving through the world. Now, I want to make sure that we take a moment to pay significant attention as well to two cases that in some ways have flown below the radar, but will have a tremendous impact on what the right to religious freedom looks like for children and families involved in public schools. Now, of course, public schools have become an increasingly contested space in recent years as efforts are made to push and pull around what is taught in the classroom and how the stories we tell about our national identity are conveyed to our young people. In these two cases, we see questions around the role of government in promoting religion in public schools coming to the fore. First and foremost, I want to talk about Carson v. Macon. Now, this is a case out of the state of Maine, which is unique in some ways as a very rural state. Certain communities in Maine have so few school-aged children that they're not able to sustain their own public schools. So the state of Maine devised a program that allowed families to qualify for vouchers to attend a private school that's close enough to their home to make that situation workable. Now, the only restriction that has drawn the ire of a certain group of religious parents is that those vouchers cannot be used at sectarian institutions, so private religious education. Why did the state raise this concern? Well, this is taxpayer money that's funding these vouchers. This is supposed to be the equivalent of a public school education. And private religious schools, while an option for many families, teach religious doctrine, answer questions around theological convictions um, that may be quite different um, from what students are learning at home. It's typically been the purview of the family and the community to convey these religious teachings without the funding of the government. And this has been a matter of church-state separation. So in Carson v. Macon, some of these families said, wait a minute, I want to send my child to a private religious school. And when the state tells me that I can't use these vouchers to have my child attend that school, that is discrimination on the basis of religion. Interfaith Alliance has been involved in this case as it moved through the federal courts, filing amicus briefs, making the case that taxpayer money, as has been consistently used in the school system up until this point, should be used in public schools. It shouldn't go toward private religious education. Yet, of course, the court being what it is, came down with a major decision. Instead of recognizing the longstanding separation between religion and government and how we fund our public education systems, the court agreed with these parents, saying that, yes, excluding religious schools from this voucher program is, in fact, discrimination against religious entities. And A small point on this that I think is important. Up until now, 
the court has allowed certain religious institutions to qualify for public funding programs if the money is not going to be used for religious purpose. So, for instance, there was a school in a case called Trinity Lutheran that wanted to qualify for funding to repave their playground. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, okay, that's not a religious use of the money. That's about keeping kids safe when they're playing. You should qualify. But never before has the court permitted the use of this money specifically for religious education purposes. That has been a sea change that we've now seen in the Carson v. Macon case. So we now have public money going out of public schools into private religious education. But what about the kids that are still in public school? What does the religious freedom of those students look like following the Supreme Court term? Well, this is where we get to the second case that I want to draw your attention to. In Kennedy v. Bremerton, a former football coach, high school football coach in Washington, brought suit against his former employer after he held repeated gatherings at the 50-yard line to pray after football games. He insists that these were private religious expressions, that students were not directed to participate, and that to refuse to renew his contract after the school asked him to please stop using the football field as an arena for public worship, this was discrimination based on his right to free exercise. Now, this case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court after Coach Kennedy had lost repeatedly in the lower courts, where it was quite clear that despite his insistence that these were private religious expressions, His players, and at times players from the other team, felt pressured to join him at the 50-yard line. And after he had received warnings from the school district to stop publicly praying in this way, in a manner that felt coercive for members of his team, he went and called the media and state legislators. And instead of dialing back, this expression increasingly made a spectacle out of this event to the point that it became disruptive for football games going forward. Coach Kennedy lost in the lower courts because this was clearly not a private expression. This was a large and impactful gathering that was taking place immediately after football games. When the case made it to the Supreme Court, the majority, upon reviewing the facts, accepted Coach Kennedy's version of events and said, yes, this was a private religious expression, and therefore it is within his free exercise rights to engage in this type of activity. The minority opinion, the dissent, included photos of Coach Kennedy standing on the 50-yard line surrounded by dozens of people praying. There was nothing private about this. And yet, what does this decision mean for the rights of students to be free from religious coercion? It could have a major impact on the power of extremely influential figures 
coaches, teachers, administrators, um, to pressure students in public school to engage in religious activities, prayers, and other gatherings in a way that we haven't seen in decades. So, in summary, what I want you to know about the Kennedy v. Bremerton decision is that the Supreme Court seems to be signaling that school prayer is back in public schools for the first time since the 1960s. We now wrap this Supreme Court term with public money moving from public schools into private religious institutions. And for those students who remain in public schools, they are increasingly vulnerable to religious coercion by authority figures who are employees of the government. Religious freedom for students of all faiths and beliefs remains critical for students from the first bell to the final bell. And yet, it seems that the pitched dispute over what is taking place in classrooms is only going to be increased by these decisions that have come down this term. It's been a difficult Supreme Court term for many of us. We can't let this moment go by without, in closing, recognizing the significance of the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, who has served the court for many years, and the swearing-in of now Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is an eminent jurist, tremendously experienced, thoughtful, and will bring a unique perspective and set of experiences to the court. This is a new day for who we imagine when we think of a Supreme Court justice. And for millions of young people, little girls, they will see themselves reflected on the court for the very first time. And we cannot let that go by without a moment of celebration. So as we head into the 4th of July weekend, I hope that everyone has the opportunity to take a deep breath, to reflect on the damage that has been done by the Supreme Court this term, and to think a bit about what the promise of freedom will look like in the year to come. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it. You can do it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners, you. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now... The best of State of Belief Radio. Back in 2006, I celebrated the 4th by speaking with author John Meacham. Meacham is the managing editor for Newsweek magazine. Today, he co-moderates the Washington Post blog on faith with fellow journalist Sally Quinn. And when we taped this interview, John had just published his magnificent book entitled American Gospel, God, the Founding Fathers, and the Making of a Nation. 
give a careful listen to John Meacham on this 4th of July weekend. John, thank you for joining us on State of Belief. Thank you, Reverend, for having me. You see in the thoughts of the founders of this nation the prescription for sustaining a diverse nation without sacrificing faith or freedom. Did you begin with this conviction, or did you come to that conviction as you worked on this material? I came to the conviction, and I was hoping uh, that I would find what I found. I wanted to do the road to uh, the religion clauses of the First Amendment, and then I found a much richer story, I think, which was the whole battle over religious freedom, both in the states and in the, the federal workings, and emerged with what I called the American gospel, which I believe that the great good news about the country is that faith shapes us without strangling us or controlling us. After looking at the primary documents and the founders of the nation closely, what is the most important myth regarding the founders and the founding? And I'm really, I guess, looking for a myth uh, which, if confronted by the truth, would benefit the nation. That's a great question. I think the idea that we were founded as a Christian nation is is the most persistent um, myth in the pure sense of that, as, as you know, in the sense of story, in the sense of a defining narrative. Because I think many people on the religious right, and I'm speaking very broadly here, but I think many people there believe that we were founded as a Christian nation, that we have fallen from those pure origins, and that the point of political action, the point of electing this president or that congressman or appointing this Supreme Court justice or passing that referendum is to get back to that Edenic state. If we could recover this, the spirit and sense of the Christian founding of the country, then would our moral life be more coherent, things would be well. It's an appealing myth, and like many myths, it's just it's, it's full of holes, um, both historically and theologically. Let's speak historically first. Historically, there is quite the opposite of there being evidence for this being a Christian nation. There's evidence to the contrary. George Washington in 1790, in his first four years president, wrote a letter to the Hebrew congregation at Newport, Rhode Island, saying that the government of the United States shall give to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. And then borrowing an image from Micah, he said, we, every man should sit under his vine and fig tree, and none shall make him afraid. We passed a treaty in 1797 with the Muslim nation of Tripoli in which we said the government of the United States is in no sense founded on the Christian religion. The only mention of religion in the Constitution is to ban test oaths uh, so that your civil rights were not part of any religious profession of, of belief. And the mentions in the Declaration of Independence, which do ground our fundamental human rights in the divine, and that's an important religious element in the life of the country, leads us to the theological argument against our being a Christian nation, which is Jefferson and others had every opportunity to use Christian imagery if they'd wanted to. They didn't. They used more deist, more generic language. Uh, they believed in a creator God, one who worked in the world through providence, one who answers prayers, one who is attentive to history, one, is partic- one who is particularly engaged with America, and the fact that we will be judged in another life for our conduct in this, which is a very important element. Theologically, as you know, you can't have a Christian nation, uh, just using the Christian scriptures. Uh, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then would my servants fight. 
St. Paul said, God is no respecter of persons or nations. And the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews said, we have no lasting city, but seek the city which is to come. And so I think that is, and the Christian nation myth is the most persistent. I think if we can talk to people who believe that on both historical and theological grounds and convince them that it's not the case, then I think to some extent this, uh, the volume could come down a bit. You conclude in your book uh, a stirring observation, I think, um, that preserving American freedom is the most demanding of tasks, requires unrelenting work and a resilient spirit. I'm interested in, if you're doing that work, what are the top two or three items on your agenda? Religious liberty it's often called our first liberty. It's the first liberty in the, in, the, in the First Amendment. And it's not just about what you do on Sunday morning, or it's not about somebody frog-marching you down to, 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 to a certain church. It's about liberty of thought. It's about how you think. It's about democracy. It's about how, how, we, can, how we can live and work together without coercion. And so I, I think the first thing to do is to ensure religious liberty, ensure freedom of conscience, make sure that church and state stay separate, but to respect that religion and politics can't be separated. And so, you know, if you're watching Meet the Press, if you're watching C-SPAN, if you're listening and you're following a debate and a religious a person says, well, we, we, we have to do X for a religious reason, don't go crazy. Don't pound the person. Don't think, oh, my God, that's some crazy Christer. It may be. That person may be all those things. But they have a right to make this case, and you have a right to make the opposite case on whatever grounds you want. And the point of America, the point of the Republican system, lowercase r, as laid out in Federalist 10, is that all of us will go into the arena, we will let the contending forces bump up against each other, and through a system of checks and balances, we'll reach some temporary solution to something That'll get us through one storm until the next storm comes. Democracy is a completely unfinished work. John Meacham, you're a great educator and inspirer, author of American Gospel, God, the Founding Fathers, and the Making of a Nation. John Meacham, thank you for being with us on State of Belief. Thanks for having me. Still to come on State of Belief... More on the Founding Fathers, religion, and the writing of the Constitution will be joined by author Steve Wallman. Steve says neither side in today's culture wars truly understands what the framers meant when they wrote the First Amendment. He'll tell us what they did mean. Stay tuned. In honor of our nation's holiday, we're taking a look back at some of our favorite interviews about the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, and of course, religion. Earlier this year, I spoke with author Steve Wallman. Steve's the founder and editor-in-chief of BeliefNet.com, the largest faith and spirituality website. Steve and I spoke in March about his recently published book, Founding Faith, Providence, Politics, and the Birth of Religious Freedom in America, here is our conversation. Steve, 
Welcome to State of Belief. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you begin your book by exploring this powerful political alliance between Enlightenment intellectuals like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who favored a kind of strict separation of religion and government, and then Christian evangelical leaders like John Leland and Isaac Backus. How was it that evangelicals in the 18th century favored a strong establishment clause when so many of them today promote the very opposite? Well, to me, this is one of the most interesting things that I learned in, in my research and one of the most important parts of the book is that we would not have religious freedom uh, today if it wasn't for this alliance of uh, Madison and Jefferson and the 18th century evangelicals. Now, you know, the most common explanation you hear is that the, the Baptists were persecuted then, and so they didn't want to give more power to the established church. And, and there clearly was uh, truth to that. But it went beyond that. They had a, a biblical uh, rationale for why they believed church and state ought to be separate. Uh, render unto Caesar uh, was just the, be- just the beginning of it. They felt that it really was uh, better for religion if, if church and state were separated, and that went much beyond the persecution issue. As you know, Leland and Bacchus both were Baptists. That's the tradition out of which I came, and uh, and I still am a Baptist. They actually said they would like theologically to see a Christian nation, but it, it wouldn't be authentic unless people had the freedom to make decisions about that. Exactly. They had they had tremendous confidence in their faith you know they felt that if if there was a sort of free marketplace of religion that christianity would win or that it would do very well and as you said faith that is coerced is not a faith that is uh, appreciated by god you say the religious right uh, is wrong in claiming the united states as a christian nation but you also point out that the left has it wrong uh, when they argue that the framers envisioned a strict separation of church and state throughout the land. Now, why is that? For one thing, the founders of that era, uh, when you think about the, the First Amendment, it was a compromise document. And though James Madison wanted strict separation throughout the land, he lost on a lot of key issues going into the First Amendment. So the First Amendment specifically was creating separation of church and state in the national government, but very clearly telling the states that they could do whatever they wanted. Now, over the course of the next 200 years, partially because of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, uh, the principle that started out on the federal level gradually worked its way into more of the nooks and crannies of American life. But that was not uh, what what the founders as a collective at that moment were doing. Uh, Aren't you amazed, or maybe you're not, that... In that period of time, there were so many people who shared common goals but were willing to push the envelope toward freedom and pass some measures that I'm not sure could get passed today. Well, I think, you know, the the example that really struck me, what you were alluding to earlier with this alliance of the Enlightenment philosophs and the evangelicals, you know, Madison and Jefferson were clearly of a different um, class and sensibility, but it didn't matter. They just felt like this was a, that, that philosophically in the fight for freedom, they were such kindred spirits 
that it made sense to uh, join together and work in this cause. Steve Wallman is the editor-in-chief of BeliefNet and author of the new book, Founding Faith, Providence Politics, and the Birth of Religious Freedom in America. Uh, Steve, it's always great to talk with you, and thanks for being with us on State of Belief. Thanks so much for uh, having me. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief. Up next, we'll look back at a conversation with author and Reverend Forrest Church. He will remind us that the disagreement over the separation of church and state is not a modern phenomenon. People who wrote the First Amendment didn't even necessarily agree. Stay tuned. What better way to celebrate what makes our country great than you doing what you're doing and we doing what we're doing? My next interview holds special significance to me. My guest, Forrest Church, is not only a respected religious leader and gifted author, he's also a very close personal friend. Here's a look back at a conversation Forrest Church and I had in January of this year. Forrest had just published his book, So Help Me God, The Founding Fathers and the First Great Battle Over Church and State. Please give a listen. Forrest, welcome to State of Belief. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm always delighted to be with you. I want to get right into this book because you've done us a great service in uh, publishing this. You have said that the group that says America was founded as a Christian nation and the group that says we have an explicitly secular foundation— are both half right. They're both 100% half right. That's <laughs> now exactly explain right. that. Well, the, the same division we have today uh, existed right at the founding. Uh, we, there are two sources that, that combine to create the American experiment. One is the, it comes out of New England. It's the notion of a Christian commonwealth or a commonwealth of God with a strong moral foundation. And the other comes out of the Enlightenment, particularly Enlightenment France, the notion of sacred liberty. So divine order and sacred liberty came right up against one another on this question of church-state separation. So much of this thought is embodied, or it seems to me is embraced by uh, the phrase which you use and and others do so regularly, so help me God. Tell us about that phrase. Well, that that goes into and then comes out of uh, uh, inaugural lore with Washington. It's not certain that he actually said it. I believe he did. Uh, There was an argument going on at the time as to whether or not senators and and congressmen would swear, so help me God. That was the first bill indicated they would. Finally, they just swore to uphold the Constitution. But the first uh, inaugural was set up by the church party, uh, by an Episcopalian, actually, Richard Henry Lee of uh, Virginia. And uh, so uh, there was a there was a worship service identified with the uh, uh, with the inaugural. I expect that Washington said, "So help me God." I know that Jefferson asked explicitly, asked the Supreme Court Justice uh, John Marshall explicitly whether or not he had to say anything else other than the congressional oath. Uh, Marshall said he did not. From that point on until 
late in the 19th century when uh, inaugurations were modeled after the uh, the Washington model, uh, there was no, uh, so help me God, in the oath of uh, office that the president swore. And when we look at the different perspectives on religion and the presidency, uh, that comes out for most people out of a concern for the relationship between religious institutions and political institutions. Uh, the First Amendment obviously has the religious liberty clauses in it. The phrase separation of church and state has become kind of a, a, a bad phrase in some right. people's mind. Where did that come from? Well, what's the development What's, what's so interesting, well, about and I, the point I make in So Help Me God to tracing the story of the first American culture war, it's interesting that the, uh, the religious uh, left of the time, the people who wanted to have absolute separation of church and state, very, very severe, the leaders of that, of that uh, movement were the Baptists. Uh, it was the Baptists, the Methodists who were more passive, all of the religious outsiders, the Catholics, the Jews, all wanted church-state separation. Why? Because they knew from past experience that whenever God had a seat in government, it wasn't going to be their God. The religious right back then were the Unitarians, the Congregationalists, the Episcopalians. Why? Because they were the elites. They peopled the governments of the states that had established religions, and it was their churches that benefited from the church-state collusion. So what that and that actually continues that idea of religious outsiders being uh, supportive of church-state uh, separation or independent spheres, if you'd prefer to put it that way, the religious insiders not being as sensitive to the dangers of this kind of collaboration, and it it, it took throughout the entire first thirty years of our history finally to sort this out. It wasn't until after the War of eighteen twelve that church and state were, uh, were actually separate, and they remained quite separate uh, from that point on until the Civil War. Now, I know that some of our listeners are still in the process of adjusting their radios because you said that the Baptists were, they were the, the, hard, left the hard left and the Unitarians were the right. That's exactly right. Now, how did that flip-flop? Well, it flip-flopped because today the Baptists are to a degree, uh, along with the religious right, I would call them, as long as the Republicans are in power anyway, they are the religious insiders. They don't, they know that, that government will have their ear. And so they don't, they're not as sensitive to the issue as they were when they were being persecuted, when they had to pay taxes for someone else's churches. Uh, but if they go back, the Baptists go back to their history, they will find, and, and in, in So Help Me God, the heroes of the book are, the, are the, really the Baptist pastors. I mean, they join with Jefferson and Madison, first of all, to disestablish uh, religion in the state religion of Virginia, and then to create a freedom of conscience clause in the Constitution, the First Amendment. It is, by the way, Welton, it's the Baptist pastors of Orange and Culpeper County, Virginia, who forced Madison to do what he didn't want to do, and that is to champion a Bill of Rights and to write a First Amendment because he was running for Congress in Virginia, and they'd always been allies throughout their many struggles, but Madison was not in favor of amendments. He did not think there should be a Bill of Rights. And uh, it was the Baptist pressure lobbies in Virginia that forced him to commit, should he be elected to Congress, that he would put at the top of his agenda a Bill of Rights and a First Amendment, a Freedom of Conscience Clause. 
And so they get credit, the Baptists get credit more than any other group for the establishment of the First Amendment, which today sometimes they complain about. Recently, I saw numbers, I think it was from the First Amendment Center, uh, from polling that they had done in which 60-plus percent of the American people that responded uh, said they considered this a Christian nation. We had uh, Senator uh, McCain, a senior senator, recently say that the Constitution established a Christian nation. Can can you believe that? It's, no, it's important. Uh, everyone seems fascinated by the history of our founding, and I think that's wonderful. But it's important that we go back to that history and, um, and read it straight. Um, and I think that's important for people on the right as well as those on the left. For instance, people need to, to recognize, who, who are very opposed to any kind of religion in politics, that it was the God Party, if you were, the, the established church party that forced the issue of uh, abolition. If the church-state separatists, the Jeffersonians, the sacred libertarians had had their way, uh, the government would never have gotten involved in emancipation because there was no legislating of morality. Uh, but to go back to our founding and say that we were founded as a Christian nation is to actually completely subvert the genius of the founders who do not introduce religion into the Constitution. And every time, Welton, that there's been an attempt to put God or Christ into the Constitution, that attempt has been very easily uh, knocked down. Uh, So to say that we're not at all religious is wrong, and to say that we're Christian is wrong. In fact, we're religious in a kind of Jeffersonian Declaration of Independence way. Reverend Forrest Church is a minister at All Souls Church in Manhattan, Uh, We've been discussing, among other things, his most recent book, So Help Me God, The Founding Fathers and the First Great Battle Over Church and State. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Forrest, and what a thrill it is to talk with you with our audience on State of Belief. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. This is State of Belief. I'm Welton Gaddy. Up next, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Anthony Lewis and his biography of the First Amendment, a reminder of why it's important that we protect what we like to call our first freedom. Stay with us, please. I was fortunate to speak with former New York Times columnist and two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, Anthony Lewis. Here's a look back at our conversation about Anthony's recent book, Freedom for the Thought that We Hate, a biography of the First Amendment. Anthony, welcome to State of Belief. Thank you so much. I want to read a quote from the book. You write, Many of the great advances in the quality, the decency of American society were initiated by judges. Uh, Do you feel then that the judges are the true protectors of the First Amendment in modern society? At their best, they are. Uh, We have to look to them in the end. The First Amendment uh, words are not self-enforcing. And in fact, the words are, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, a very general statement, you know, sweeping, but... Um, what what does it actually mean in practice? Well, it was added to the Constitution in 1791 and first enforced by the Supreme Court. First time it ever decided in favor of free speech or freedom of the press was 1931. 
140 years later. So we have to depend on judges. For a long time, they look the other way. You talk about a lot of different cases uh, in your book. Does one of these cases stand out over the others as a defining moment for the protection of the First Amendment? Yes. <laughs> the great moments have been in dissent. And, and I might just read one passage. Sure. Um, because during the years when the court as a whole was not prepared to uh, enforce free expression, there were judges who wanted to. And they began writing dissents in 1919, great dissent by Justice Holmes, in a case in which a group of radicals had thrown a pamphlet from the roof of a building in New York, uh, which criticized President Wilson for sending troops to Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution. Political criticism of a kind we would regard as absolutely central to uh, First Amendment freedoms. Mm -hmm. They were prosecuted under the Sedition Act put in by President Wilson, convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison for those pathetic pamphlets. Mm. Now, Justice Holmes dissenting said, persecution for the expression of opinion seems to me perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and want a certain result with all your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faith, they may come to believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas. That, at any rate, is the theory of our Constitution. It is an experiment, as all life is an experiment. While that experiment is part of our system, I think that we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe and believe to be fraught with death. At the end of writing the project, were you hopeful or were you discouraged about the future of the First Amendment? Well, it's a good question. I think hopeful on the whole because we came from a time when there was no protection early in the 20, as late as 1930. That is to say, the amendment was there, but the courts didn't enforce it. We've come to a time when there's very large-scale, wide judicial enforcement of the right to express yourself, even on controversial subjects. And I don't see any sharp challenge to that right now in law. On the other hand, I have to say, to take a grim possibility, if there were another terrorist attack in this country of a kind like the Twin Towers, I think the fear would be profoundly deeper and we might be willing to stand for um, repression. That's happened in our history. Freedom for the Thought That We Hate, a biography of the First Amendment, is the new book by Anthony Lewis. Anthony, thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you. Now, I can't go without sharing with you just a few comments of my own. July 4th is always an important day for me, for reflection and self-examination, as well as for celebration. I worry about our commitment to freedom, especially in light of a pervasive fear of terrorism. I'm concerned by undiscerning citizens who are willing to give up basic freedoms for a modicum of security. A national bent toward authoritarianism is of no little cause for disturbance. Look, I criticize my country because I love my country. 
When I point to our government's faults, I know one of the fingers on my hand is pointing at me, reminding me that we are the government, and with few exceptions, we get the leaders we elect. Pointing to the faults in our nation is not a happy exercise of putting down our nation, but a wake-up call for all of us to take care of our nation. I like patriotic stuff on this day, playing John Philip Sousa marches and shooting fireworks, remembering the suffragettes who thought everybody should vote and the freedom riders who thought the color of a person's skin should not alter that person's access to all the blessings of liberty. As a person of faith, I will ask God to bless America if we deserve it, and I will also ask God to make us restless until we move closer to fulfilling the wholeness of our Founder's dream. But I also today will ask God to bless other lands and those who reside there and move all of us toward an international community in which we feel more like neighbors than competitors, a land in which there are no enemies. There's a relatively new hymn that I love to sing. We'll sing it in our congregation in Monroe this weekend. Perhaps its lyrics by Lloyd Stone will be as meaningful to you as they are to me. My country's skies are bluer than the ocean, and sunlight beams on clover, leaf, and pine. But other lands have sunlight, too, and clover, and skies are everywhere as blue as mine. Oh, hear my song, O God of all the nations, a song of peace for their land and for mine. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Please consider making a contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be a part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week. One person for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy. That state of belief. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See, he was, he was.